0: Good afternoon, everyone. and Welcome to another episode of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter, joined as always by Cole Little. And Cole, how was your weekend this past weekend?
1: Good. Real good, man. How about yours? Uh,
0: it's been good. Uh, weather's been getting fairly, fairly chilly really quick back in Wisconsin, so that's kind of taking yeah. the outside fun away from it. But today it's supposed to be in the 60s again, so at least we'll get one more day of enjoyable weather, hopefully before when it yeah. officially gets here,
1: yeah. See, down yeah. here we're we're just sort of ready for it to get cool.
0: Okay, yeah. so I'll trade. I'll trade you. I'll give you what we have. you have
1: I'm, this way. Oh, no, we're good. Or I'm good. But
0: <laughs> well, we'll kick off the show today with obviously the biggest news in the Chicago sports world, probably in. 10 years, I would say, and that is Theo Epstein officially stepping down from his Cubs president position a year early. Uh, We've talked about this in the past that the writing was on the walls the last couple years as to this happening, but I don't think either one of us expected it to happen before his contract is up thoughts on what you think kind of happened with the situation and obviously I don't think either one of us is surprised I might be a little bit more surprised than you though
1: yeah I'm not I'm not terribly surprised just cuz his I mean the reasoning he gave behind his early resignation kind of I mean it makes a good bit of sense you know, obviously it seemed like a foregone conclusion based on everything he said about um, you know, his his concept of a ten year window that he had at the Red Sox and still had with the Cubs and his contract situation. It just seemed inevitable that next fall, after you know, he had been with the Cubs for, for right around ten years, that he would step aside. And that seemed to be, you know, what he implied his thinking was at his end of season press conference back in early October. And yeah, it's like something happened over the course of the next month and a half. Um, You know, we may never know exactly what it is because obviously, you know, he just gave the really, um, you know, business minded kind of politically correct answer and saying that, you know, he just decided the timing was right for um, Jed Hoyer to take over. I mean, I think that's part of it, you know, just thinking that well, if, if they are going to make these wholesale changes this off season, it probably needs to be with somebody who, you know, will have to take the brunt of those decisions and their effectiveness in the years to come uh being Hoyer who is already set up to take over for Epstein anyway. But you do have to wonder if you know Epstein's line of thinking here, if maybe some of his um you know comments he's made about uh every pretty much everything being on the table from a trade perspective. Um, you know, including so many of their star players, the Cubs star players, if that sort of pushed possibly Tom Ricketts or, you know, the Ricketts family as a whole or or whomever to go ahead and suggest that Epstein step aside so as to have, you know, Hoyer in there to make the decision since, um, in, you know, everything, every decision he would make would be something that could affect his job standing in years to come, as opposed to Theo, who would just be kind of riding it out for a year and then leaving. Um You know, obviously what the Epstein era, you know, in Chicago on the north side should be remembered as mostly positive, obviously, you know, specifically for helping lead the team to their first world series in over a hundred years and the ample other things that he did, um, you know and we i mean i wish him all the best in whatever he does next it sounds like he's going to take the 2021 season off for good you know not be around major league baseball at all and who knows he might look to start an ownership group after that or you know get back into doing what he's been doing and start a new 10 year window with another franchise
0: obviously uh, myself, along with every Cubs fan out there, is going to respect you and appreciate everything that he's done for this franchise. It's been not obviously always pretty this first couple of years here. Things were rough, but that was kind of expected because that's kind of what he told fans to expect. But after he started getting rolling, it was probably the greatest five-year run in Chicago Cubs history, or at the very least, probably the greatest run they've had since the 40s. The one knock that he's always had is he knows how to draft players, he knows how to sign free agents, and he knows how to build a championship team. The one issue that he's always had is sustaining those championship teams, whether it was failed development with who he drafted, whether it was bad free agent contracts that kind of hindered a team spending years down the road. And that same pattern that he had in Boston kind of trickled down into Chicago, at least in recent years. So that's kind of the only knack that people kind of have against him. But I don't like saying this just because of everything he's done for us. But I brought this up to you off the air earlier this week. And to me, it just seems like Theo was forced out earlier than he wanted to go despite what he said in his press conference and the only reason why I bring that up is last Friday and into last week and he was talking about how no player on the roster was safe this year whether it was Javier Baez or any one of the people that normally you would never think about trading he came out and said he is open to dealing everybody and then 72 hours later he says he's stepping away to me there's just something that I think is a little fishy in that situation something that is missing that we may never know because he may not openly admit to what actually happened.
1: Yeah, we'll probably never know. And I mean, I agree with you on that. I could easily see, you know, Tom Ricketts or, or somebody else, you know, in that family or, or with plenty of power in that organization, bringing it up that, you know, it's probably in the best interest in the, in the club. If he steps aside and Hoyer who, is planning on being there for the foreseeable future makes these decisions. And, you, you know, you do make a great point about um, Epstein being a guy who's awesome at building up a team. I mean, obviously the White, the Red Sox won their first World Series in forever with him at the helm, and the Cubs, like I said, won their first World Series in over 100 years with them at the helm. So he's great at, you know, building up teams, but maybe – This sustainability part of it is is more of a difficult. It's more of a difficult task. I mean, obviously, he left the Red Sox under kind of a strange scenario where he, you know, departed when it wasn't exactly expected, and he famously left Fenway Park, um, you know, in a gorilla suit because it was around Halloween. He didn't want to run into the press and get hounded with questions about his resignation, but, and obviously he took the Cubs job soon after that. Um, But yeah, I mean that, you know, that's definitely going to be the one kind of dark mark against his Cubs tenure is specifically these last two off seasons as in, you know, fall of 2018, fall of 2019 and the lack of changes made um, the lack of question marks that were you know answered or dealt with on this team it it almost just kind of seemed like Epstein was really reluctant to make any changes to that core group and Of course, there were bullpen issues throughout that time. obviously, the Kimbrel signing hasn't worked out really, and you know I mean obviously you did so many great things to build up that roster prior to the end of the 2018 season. But since then, you could argue that there weren't really enough changes made. And one thing I found interesting, you know, I remember last summer, as in the summer of 2019, you know, after the Cubs really struggled in June and, you know, there was plenty of angst surrounding the team and like early July, for the all-star break. And I just remember around that time, it, it almost seemed like when both of these guys would make their media appearances, whether it was on the radio or, or, you know, on a TV interview or whatever, it seemed like Hoyer was a little more um, aggressive and, and critical and, and being critical of the current group and, you know, and Madden um, as opposed to Theo who has expressed a little more patience. So you also have to wonder if Hoyer, you know, privately or behind the scenes really wanted more changes to be made these past few years that Epstein was reluctant to make. And therefore that makes him kind of like the best, you know, the best man for the job, the best person for the job in kind of blowing up this core, if you will. Because, I mean, they're going to – you know, there's a good chance that some of the biggest changes that have been made to the Cubs in several years, since early on in the Epstein tenure, will have to be made this offseason and next. So, you know, we'll have to see, you know, what Hoyer has in mind and if he's able to pull all of that off.
0: Yeah, I – Hoyer was pretty much a done given to replace Theo because Theo's kind of been molding him since he got to Chicago for that position, whatever that was, whether it was with the Cubs organization or somewhere else, Theo was always molding him to be the president of a team. So that part doesn't surprise me. It's just the way Theo kind of even put it in his press conference, basically saying that the team is going to undergo a lot of changes this year that are going to affect the team moving forward and the person that makes these changes needs to be someone that's going to be here long-term. Yeah. That kind of puts Jed Hoyer in a difficult position this year because I'm not going to call it a mess because, obviously, Theo didn't put a mess together, but he kind of put a team together that's in the crossroads. Now where Jed Hoyer is coming in where not only does he have to worry about the decisions he's got to make on this roster, but now he has to find a new general manager before he can even start making those decisions. So he's got pressure on himself right away to do that. And now any decision he makes going forward, it's going to reflect on him versus if Theo would have been making these decisions for one more season. And technically Jed Hoyer could have been the one making the decisions behind the scenes and then Theo would have been the one announcing them. So nobody even really knows if that would have happened. But now everything going forward is going to fall on Jed Hoyer, even if it's something that Theo kind of set up to be that way.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I mean, Theo has never been – I mean, he's hes as being somebody who's been in that job and he's worked in MLB front office for for so long. I mean, he's somebody who says kind of all the right things in his media appearances – And isn't exactly the most transparent. So, you know, who knows? This could have been something that Epstein had kind of planned all along or at least planned since, you know, October. And Hoyer was aware of it. And maybe they just, you know, didn't want to distract from, you know, the rest of the postseason or award season. Or whatever. I mean, maybe Epstein had like some certain things on his checklist that he wanted to get done before making the uh, switch. But, you know, or like you said, and and like I kind of implied, you know, maybe his recent comments and his attitude toward these changes pushed the rickets to kind of say, hey, we would like for Hoyer to go ahead and take over since, you know, these these big changes he's going to have to answer for in the coming years Anyway, um, so, yeah, we may never know, really. I mean, it, at this point, I guess we just kind of have to take them at their word that they just sort of came to this decision here recently that or Epstein came to this decision here recently that was best friend the to step aside. Um, I mean, I will say this. Even if the Ricketts, you know, or whomever in that front office – decided that it was best for Epstein to go ahead and go like I don't I can't imagine that that was a decision that like had him kicking and screaming like you know I got I feel like he's pretty content with stepping away and you know and, and taking a year off and and deciding what's next in his chapter um so you know, especially since Hoyer, he was all, he was always grooming Hoyer, like you said, anyway, and was going to hand it off to him regardless of when he stepped aside, if it was this off season or next. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in a way it might be, you know, best for, for Hoyer to go ahead and take over. Cause again, this is like the most important off season the Cubs have had in many years, in several years. So we'll, you know, see what Hoyer has planned and, um, and yeah, it's, it can be a new Cubs era in the front office from here on out.
0: And then what do you see like the plans going forward? I guess, like, what direction do you think the team's going to take? And who do you think would make a good general manager under Hoyer? I know Jed McLeod or Jed McLeod was up for the Angels general manager job a couple weeks ago, and he never got it. And he's kind of been in the front front office with them since this whole turnaround began. So he's obviously one of the options that I'm sure that Hoyer is going to consider. But then I heard talks today that you might be looking at the two assistant general managers in Arizona at that position. I just kind of want to hear your thoughts on what direction you think the team is going to go. And then who do you think Hoyer is going to look at in terms of a general manager replacement?
1: Yeah, I think McCloud, I mean, that seems like one of the likeliest hires and would probably be one of the smartest hires he can make you know, since he, yeah, he was up for the Angels job, didn't get it recently, um, which, honestly, you have to wonder if that was also something that factored into the the timing of the um, Epstein announcement is waiting to see how the chips fell in other hiring, and other front office hirings. But, um, yeah, regardless, yeah, he would be a good man for the job. You know, as far as what I expect, for this off season, I mean, regardless of um, who's brought in to serve as the GM under Hoyer, this is going to be really whole, all about Hoyer, I think, this offseason. And, you know, the, the major decisions are just going to fall on his lap. And they're probably things that he's had been thinking about and stewing about for a while in terms of what he would do to help change, uh, shake up this core you know, I think one of the top things that will be on his plate is looking to move Chris Bryant and, you know, how to – I mean, as, as sad as that kind of – as sad as that may sound, you know, to, to kind of quickly look to move on from the Chris Bryant era. Obviously, that whole situation with his contract has been kind of a headache for the Cubs front office, I'm sure, and, and Cubs ownership recently and you know I and obviously he's dealt with so many injury issues in recent years and just hasn't really been the same Chris Bryant of old uh, these past three seasons so you know that's just that's probably going to be one of the top things on his list you know I can imagine that really with the exception of the two aces in Darvish and Hendricks, and then, you know, the the glue guy, the team leader in Rizzo, who obviously exercised his option and will be back in the fold. Other than those three guys, I can imagine that pretty much anything is on the table, um, you know, in terms of trades. Uh, like Epstein implied recently, you know, pretty much anybody could be on the move. Javi Baez could be on the move. Um You know, so many of those core guys who seemed untouchable in recent years when it seemed like the go to scapegoat was blaming the bullpen or blaming, you know, the depth or blaming not having a steady, you know, reliable leadoff man, which all those things are true. But I mean, at the end of the day, in order to be able to major changes to those spots, you're gonna have to free up some, you know, some quote-unquote caps, some Ricketts-based caps pace. Because I mean, obviously, no, no salary cap in MLB, but the but Tom Ricketts is basically implied that he has a, a salary cap of his own in terms of what he's willing to spend on player personnel, and you know, which arguably limited what Theo could do these past couple of years. But I digress. Um, so yeah. Hoyer's going to have to look to move some of those big-name guys who are still under contract, whether it's, you know, Baez or Schwarber or Contreras, what have you, and just look to maybe get younger, get more guys in that group, in that core group who um, are better at getting on base, taking walks. You know, just setting this team up to where they can, you know, have room to work with um you know, here the next couple of years while also simultaneously keeping those World Series aspirations alive?
0: Yeah, I'm all for moving a lot of players on this team just because they have, like, for example, you move Kyle Schwarber, you have options that you can use in left field if he's not there. If you move Chris Bryant, you have options like David Bodie that you could use at third you move Wilson Contreras, you have Victor Caratini and Miguel Amaya, so you have options there. And I know I don't like to say that any player is untouchable because if the package is right, obviously everyone comes with a price. Yeah. But the one player that I do deem, in my opinion anyways, that should be untouchable on this roster is Javier Baez. No matter what people are going to say about the season that he had last year, That's just a microcosm of how he's been in his career. Because if you look at his numbers from 2016 through 2019, he was the only player on that roster that improved in home runs and RBIs every single season. While Bryant and some of these other guys were going backwards, he was the only one that was going forwards and then just went through whatever he went through this year. I don't even know what that was. But the way I look at it is you move on from Javier Baez – you do not have anybody to replace him as you would for other positions. Yes, you can have Nico Horner slide into shortstop, which is fine, but then you open up a gaping hole at second base, which has been an issue for the team for the past three or four years anyways. If I'm the Cubs, I'm keeping Javier bias at least for another three or four years until you get to the point where Ed Howard is ready to get called up. And then that's the time that I would move on for him just because unless you have somebody lined up for Javier Baez long term, you're hurting yourself more by moving on from him at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I largely agree with you there. Um, you know, I've, I'm a huge Javier Baez fan. I just think that he brings so much to the table that really nobody else in Major League Baseball brings to the table. I mean, the the El Mago nickname is perfect in so many ways um, you know his ultimate bugaboo is just what so many other of those players in that core group their primary problem is just not a great approach at the plate specifically these past two seasons 2019 2020 um, you know just too many strikeouts again not enough patience at the plate I mean he's never been a guy who's taking a lot of walks probably never will be but you know, that's just the one thing that could – that that's really limiting, I guess, him, you know, solidifying himself as one of the certified top two-way players in baseball. I mean, obviously he had a phenomenal 2018 season, specifically, you know, from the start of the season to about early August. And then the last couple months of the season wasn't – wasn't as great as he was for most of the season, but um, was still an MVP candidate nonetheless. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, he's just a guy defensively, uh, base running-wise, you know, just brings some, you know, baseball IQ-wise, just brings so much to the table and offers so much that you it's not replaceable. I mean, you're right, you can't really get that from anyone else in baseball. So yeah, I would hope it would take a lot for them to move on from them, just like from him, just like I would hope it would take them a lot, take Hoyer a lot to move on from Rizzo because of what, you know, he brings in terms of leadership and his relationship with Ross and the fact that he's, you know, really like the de facto leader of that team. Um, So those, those are really the two glue guys who I look at as being um in that in that batting order um who would be really difficult to move on from and then obviously Darvish and Hendricks on the pitching front uh but yeah I mean I I agree with you I would hope that you know they would give um Baez another another chance you know another 162 game season to get back to to greatness but um yeah, cuz I feel like he's a guy who we can't necessarily claim we've seen the best of. Like I feel like his ceiling is still, you know, he still has some ways to go before he really hits his ceiling. Um at least offensively. So, yeah, I think it would be unwise to move on from them from him, but a lot of the other guys in that lineup, you know, I think you could basically say that we've kind of seen what they're capable of we've maybe seen the best of him and you know it it would it wouldn't be a bad decision to move on from him
0: yeah the only way honestly that I would move on from him is if the cubs are getting francisco lindor in return which i don't yeah. see that happening so i like i'm in agreement with you you hang on to him as long as you possibly can because we've seen his mvp year and then even 2019 before he broke his thumb his numbers around pace that even be better than his MVP or so we actually don't know what his actual ceiling is going to be at this point point. and then the one suggestion I think I pointed this out even last year regarding Baez on how I think he could become a better player and I may be completely off the wall on this and just out of my range on this but Javier Baez is a natural left-handed player And there's videos, there's plenty of reports out there that more often than not, when he's in batting practice, he hits left-handed more than he hits right-handed. And oftentimes, he actually hits the ball better left-handed than he does right-handed. I'm not saying it's something that would happen now, but Baez is the type of player that I think could become a switch hitter. And if he decided to dedicate himself to being a switch hitter, I think that's when his strikeout numbers might go down and then that's when you might be able to see the kind of player he really can be.
1: Yeah. Wow. That would be, that'd be pretty wild. Um, obviously we've seen him bat left-handed a couple of times now, actually got a hit out of it this season. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's one of the interesting things about him is he's left-handed and pretty much everything he does except baseball related things. So, yeah, who knows? I mean, with him, I don't, I don't discount anything. I mean, he's, you know, I don't, I don't rule out anything when it comes to what Javi Baez might look to do to better himself. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I just, and you make a great point. I mean, his numbers were actually pretty good for most of the 2019 season, even though he wasn't. I'm an MVP candidate and just didn't really seem to have that same type of approach at the plate to me, strikeouts or bat bats as compared to the year prior. But yeah, I mean, you know, this season was just one to forget for him for the most part. Um, And hopefully he'll just be able to bounce back and and return to form in the spring.
0: And now we'll switch gears into basketball now. And the NBA draft was last night. I don't know how Closely you watched, or how closely most of listeners watch it, but I tend to watch the entire first round more than the second round because that's usually when the most action happens, or like the more big time names come off the board. And the player that I wanted was James Wiseman. And the reason why I say that is Wiseman is a seven foot one, two hundred and sixty pound center who's probably as close to Dwight Howard when Dwight Howard came directly out of high school, as you're going to get. Yes, the NBA has moved away from the standard stand in the paint, guard the basket type of center, but Wiseman's one of those centers that can also stretch the floor and knock down the three. And in order to get James Wiseman, there was a report that the Bulls were trying to trade with the Warriors and packaging Wendell Carter Jr. into the deal to get Wiseman. As much as I like Wendell Carter Jr. as a player – he's actually playing out of position. The Bulls have him as basically a six-foot-nine-and-a-half center that is more of a power forward. And then you look at Markkanen, who is seven-foot-one. Markkanen should be the center, but because of the way he plays his style, he's got to be more of a stretch forward. So basically the Bulls have their two biggest players on the roster right now playing out of position. That's why I would have liked a guy like Wiseman to come to Chicago, because that would have immediately given the Bulls the legitimate center that they need.
1: Yeah, I mean, that would have been ideal, the most ideal, I think, is fair to say. And I did find those trade rumors we saw surrounding the Bulls moving up in the draft to be pretty interesting. Obviously, it didn't come to fruition, and the Warriors drafted Wiseman. Second overall, um, it didn't seem like the stunning – You know, ill-timed Clay Thompson injury news really affected their draft approach. It seemed like it was going to be Wiseman all the way at number two, assuming the uh, Timberwolves took Edwards, Anthony Edwards, number one overall, which they did. So obviously the Bulls ended up going with Patrick Williams from Florida State at number four. And I think it's fair to say that was the biggest reach of the draft, really. I mean, that was not really something that was expected for Williams to go in the top five. Um, he's a work in progress. I mean, he's a young, very talented small forward, but he was he served as the sixth man for a very deep Florida State team, a very good Florida State team this past season. His freshman year, is lone year at Florida State, um, and he played, you know, very well. Won six man of the year in the ACC, but uh, he he's not a guy who's viewed as as being someone who can come in and you know really excel from the jump. He's going to be sort of a work in progress. Um, and I think it was surprising to most NBA pundits that he went in the top five and that the Bulls chose to you know opted not to pick. Obi Toppin or or somebody like that who is more proven and more NBA ready. But, you know, Williams has a lot of intangibles. I mean, he's really viewed as kind of a three and D guy, um, a, uh, a young player who fits in well with the current NBA. And, you know, I think the decision to draft him probably speaks to the approach that the Bulls have as a whole with obviously a new GM, a new coach, new head coach, new, you know, coaching staff in general. Um, And it's going to be an approach of patience that we've talked about and kind of using these next couple of years, the first couple of seasons under Billy Donovan to, you know, get older, get more experienced, um, you know, turn the ship around and and get the Bulls back on a winning track before they're expected to necessarily compete, um, you know, to to be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. So, you know, Williams is a guy who I guess the Bulls really like what they saw with him, liked his upside, liked his ceiling. He's certainly very athletic, and, um, you know, he'll just be – He'll just be a guy who, you know, Bulls fans are going to have to um, temper their expectations a little bit in in terms of, you know, not expecting him to come in and and be one of the top stars right away. You know, it'll be a little bit probably, but, you know, who knows? He could be a guy based on his skill set who fits in incredibly well in the NBA and and turns out to be a superstar for the Bulls in the years to come.
0: Yeah, when Wiseman went number two, then I kind of wanted the Bulls to focus more on that Denny Adesia just because they need kind of that point guard type of person running the offense. And it seems like the Bulls want to get more of a veteran point guard as opposed to a rookie point guard, which is fine just because, they have enough young talent on the roster as it is, but the one thing that stands out with Patrick Williams and both of us can attest to it, you being a Clemson fan and me doing it being a Duke fan for college basketball, we both watch the ACC a lot, is he is the one player in this draft that nobody was talking about until roughly two weeks ago. And all of a sudden, about two weeks ago, he goes from being a late lottery kind of early 20s type of prospect all of a sudden being a top 10 prospect and a potential top five prospect and Arturis Karnasovas said he loves a lot of Williams game that nobody talks about outside of like his athleticism and his like raw ability and size for his age he was the second youngest prospect in the class but Karnasovas loves the way he passes he loves the way that He kind of uses his size to his advantage and his athleticism to his advantage in the paint. And the one word that I kept hearing him reiterate was versatility, where he feels Williams can be a guy that can come in and play four positions on the floor. Mm -hmm. I don't think he contributes much this season, but at the same time, I kind of want to say he will because you expect your top five pick to see a lot of minutes. Whether that means he's going to start or come off the bench, I really do think Williams is going to see a ton of minutes this year, and I think he's going to greatly improve as the year goes on.
1: Yeah, probably so. I mean, you know, and and like you said, that is one of the great things about him is he's so athletic and and has so many different intangibles that he can play several different positions. Um, You know, he's sort of a jack-of-all-trades six-man for Florida State anyway. so. Um, yeah, I think it's just that that's probably what ultimately appealed to Karnasovas, who probably feels like his ceiling is really, really high. William, ceiling, that is. And yeah, I mean, I certainly don't have a problem with the pick. I mean, it wasn't too shocked. I just, you know, I, I understand that it wasn't, you know, it's pretty surprising for him to go top five, because like you said, just up until a week or two ago, there were really no draft experts who are projecting him to go that high. I mean, he was viewed as sort of a being a a guy who's likely to get picked in the bottom half of the uh, draft lottery, and, and of the lottery picks, the lottery picks portion of the first round as opposed to the top half. But, you know, I understand the pick, and I think it, again, I think it speaks to what, you know, Karnasovas and and Donovan's approach is going to be in terms of one of patience these next couple of years and, and you know, figuring things out and getting this team back to being playoff ready. Um, and I think, you know, Williams is going to be an integral piece in all of that.
0: Yeah, when you have um, some scouts basically comparing him to a, a more polished version of Paul Millsap and a less polished version of Chris Bosch, Hmm. That's a pretty good company to be in considering the type of players that those two ended up being.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: But the one the one pick that not many people are going to talk about, and it really wasn't even a pick because he went undrafted, and then the Bulls signed him after the draft was over, and that's Kansas point guard Devin Dotson. Uh, he was a Chicago native for elementary school, high school, before going to Kansas. And a lot of people compare Dotson to – Kobe White in terms of how he plays with just the sheer speed that he has on the court, the sheer vision like that. But the biggest difference between him and White is White's more of a scorer where Dotson's more of a point guard and like a pass first type of player who does have the scoring capabilities to take over a game. Right now it's unclear what his role is going to be. I believe the Bulls are going to sign him to – a two-way contract to start, probably start him with Windy City and then go from there. But Dotson's kind of that pick that reminds me of, like, the Fred Van Vlietz and, like, those undrafted free agents where people know who they are. They know that they can play, but they just need to be given an opportunity to show what they really can do, and I think that's kind of what the G League is going to do for Dotson this year where he's going to show that he should have been in that 25 to 30 range where a lot of people had him going in come draft night.
1: Yeah, I was I was happy to see that the Bulls signed him. You know, it was pretty surprising that he went undrafted. Um, I mean, especially considering he considered entering the draft after his freshman year uh, last year. So, you know, he had a great sophomore season with Kansas, uh, was, you know, the floor general for that great team. Uh, which you know, at the time of college basketball getting shut down, was arguably the best team in the country and the likeliest team to to win it all. And he was a second team All American. So yeah, I mean, he had an awesome sophomore campaign that should have boosted his draft stock. But yeah, not not getting drafted was pretty surprising. So that could turn out to be a, a steal for cans for uh, the Bulls. That is. Assign him to a two way deal, you know. And I mean, you know, with the NBA draft only being um, two rounds, it seems like a lot of times you have guys who don't necessarily boast like all the great and in- intangibles, you know, whether it's size or speed or athleticism or what have you, who go undrafted and turn out to be steals, um, you know, with these two way deals. I mean, like for example, you know Marcus Howard, the great scorer from Marquette. Um, you know he went undrafted, and but almost immediately after the draft, the Nuggets signed him to a two-way deal. So, you know, it could turn out to be. And and he's kind of like Dotson, and being a guy who's you know somewhat undersized. I mean, he's a little more undersized than Dotson, and he's only five eleven, but. You know not a big guy, not a super athletic guy, but obviously somebody with plenty of scoring ability and and who has the capability of being a true floor general so yeah that I agree with you that could turn out to be a big steal for the bulls getting Dotson um on the free agent market like that after the draft, and uh you know of course, we wish him well in his in his debut season.
0: And there's still, there's still reports out there that the Bulls are going to seek veteran point guard help, whether it's through free agency, through trade, or whatever. Uh, with only $9 million in cap space, there's not really a whole lot the Bulls are going to be able to do unless they trade some of their pieces. I know Fred VanVleet was mentioned as a possible target for the Bulls. Goran Dragic was mentioned as a possible target for the Bulls. I personally think Dragic's going to be out of their price range where they may be able to swing a deal for Van Vliet. But unless they part ways with Zach Levine or Otto Porter, I don't see any free agent signings to get done. But I did see a report now yesterday that the Bulls are in talks with trying to acquire Kemba Walker from Boston, which to me, I think that would be the perfect trade for Chicago. Because if you look at cap numbers, Porter Jr.'s making twenty-eight million this year, Walker's making twenty-nine million, so it's basically a horse apiece in terms of taking on cap space. Then not only would you get the point guard that you're looking for in Walker, but you're adding a scoring point guard to go next to Levine, and then you can also bring Kobe White off the bench, and that's gonna give the Bulls that much deeper of a lineup.
1: Yeah, I mean, if they can get Walker, they should definitely pull the trigger and trade for him. I was pretty stunned to see that the Celtics are already, you know, after just having him for a year, are already putting him out there in trade talks. Um, They're also doing the same with Gordon Hayward, but that's more understandable. I mean, you figure that Walker was viewed as, you know, being the, the floor general of the future for that team, which obviously he's going to look to, you know, compete for an NBA title every year for the foreseeable future. But, yeah, if the Bulls could get him, I mean, certainly, you know, I know they're they're trying to probably kind of stay young and not get too many um, guys with hefty salaries. But, you know, if you can go ahead and trade for, for him, obviously one of the top point guards in the league, uh, then they should certainly do that.
0: Close out shot today. We'll uh, basically finish with football for the rest of the show, and we might as well just get it over with and cut right to the chase on the Chicago Bears' wonderful performance on Monday night. Um, yeah, if it wasn't for Cordero Patterson, that would have been a very exciting game, I must say, because their offense was held to 34 yards of offense in the second half, with 30 of them coming on that final drive on those two passes, so offensively they look great defensively they played just as tough as they always play and once Hicks was lost with a hamstring injury Delvin Cook started to get the yards that Minnesota expects him to get so that didn't help the cause and now Nick Foles goes down with an injury leaving the Bears with a whole lot more questions to be answered heading into the game with Green Bay next week Green I hate to say it because there's still five games left for Chicago, but or six six games left for Chicago, sorry, six games left. But I think their season realistically came to an end with that loss to Minnesota on Monday.
1: Yeah, I I can't disagree with you there. I mean it you know, it it just the offense doesn't seem to be getting any better. I mean, obviously that was the first game with Bill Lazor making all the play calls instead of Nagy, and you know it—it it didn't look any better. Arguably, look worse. The offense that is, um, you know, really only a couple quality drives, and you know, obviously they took advantage. They benefited from uh, Minnesota turning the ball over twice in Chicago territory. And, uh, yeah, still couldn't score a single offensive touchdown. Obviously, the only touchdown was Patterson's kickoff return to start the second half. Um, And, yeah, Foles getting hurt, you know, almost seemed like icing on the cake for just the offensive implosion. But, you know, so far it it sounds like the reports are pretty optimistic in a way for it not being – too serious an injury for him but we'll see if you know he's ready to give it a go out of the bye week um I wouldn't be surprised if he's not and then obviously Trubisky which we talked about last week is is hurt and out for at least a few more weeks or so it seems um so yeah I mean it's just you know my one of my biggest takeaways from all of this is that you know what a waste of a great defense. Because I, I mean, I, in a way, I feel sorry for the Bears' defense and defensive coordinator Chuck Pagano, because that's a that's a Super Bowl caliber defense. I mean, that front seven is just nasty, and and that secondary is good too. So, you know, that's just a waste of a defense that continues to show up and and you know play is as well as it can week after week and just practically no offensive support um especially in the second half you know at at least until late in the fourth quarter when they're in desperation mode but yeah i mean just the continued lack of you know putting together drives in the third quarter i mean in that game there were three three and outs and and in the third quarter and you know even Patterson's electrifying kickoff return couldn't really jumpstart that offense. And obviously not having Montgomery in that game and, you know, having to insert Miller into the fold for his Bears debut, that certainly wasn't ideal. Um, And obviously that run game since Cohen suffered the season ending injury has, you know, not been the same, certainly been a shell of itself. And that's going to, obviously cut into how effective this offense can be the rest of the way. But, you know, it's just not much works. I mean, they've tried to get Patterson involved with, you know, some wildcat plays, some end arounds, and just nothing's really worked there. So many of Foles' downfield throws are off the mark, so it's hard for them to develop consistency with, you know, in the passing game, and it's – you know, I mean, it's obviously he made a bad throw right off the bat on Monday's game, a high throw that you know he should have completed, and and Harrison Smith picked him off. And you know, I mean, it's it's almost like it's it's you know it was doomed for the offense to rear its ugly head when the Bears got off to that deceptively good start, where they had all the comebacks and the great defensive play. But it's pretty surprising just how bad the offense is still playing, um, you know, this late in the season and considering they should be a team that's gunning for a playoff spot. And, yeah, right now it seems like, you know, the hopes of the Bears making the playoffs should be considered a pipe dream just because of how bad and, you know, and and inconsistent this offense is.
0: I will say there's a couple things that the Bears have going for them if they want to make the playoffs. Uh, Take the two Packer games out of the equation and the Bears schedule is going to start getting a whole lot easier. So they do have that going for them. You look at the Seahawks and the Rams and the Cardinals who are all six and three. All of them currently have playoff spots and Those three teams are going to have to battle it out the rest of the season, so someone's got to lose those games. So that kind of falls in favor of the Bears as well. We'll get back to Chicago's offense in a minute here, but like what you were just talking about, how the Bears' defense is so good that it's just a complete waste to pretty much waste the performances that they put in given week in and week out. Not only do they have the Packers, in which I feel is pretty much either a win or go-home situation next week, or it's basically a must-win for them if they want any sort of playoff life the final month of the season, but once Hicks got injured in that game against Minnesota, you could just see the defense become so just down. Their heads were down. They were just Deflated. Everything that you can possibly think of went wrong. When Hicks went wrong, and Cook started to get the running yards, Bears couldn't get any pressure on Cousins, and everything just went downhill. Question now is, what happens to this team if Hicks is out against the Packers in multiple weeks if that hamstring doesn't heal?
1: Yeah, that'll be brutal. I mean, he's really kind of like the the glue guy of that defense. Um, you know, he's really one of the most underrated. You know, in terms of around the NFL, the attention he gets, one of the most underrated defensive linemen. So, yeah, that would be huge. I mean, obviously, he has a history of keeping Dalvin Cook in check and was doing a great job up front for most of that game. And then when he went out, uh, like you said, the Cook finally started to reel off some good runs and the the Bears' front seven wasn't as effective in, in limiting him. So, yeah, that would be big. I mean, you know, as far as what I'm expecting um, in week 12 at the Packers, I mean, you know, assuming that they have a banged up Foles or, or, you know, neither one of those guys, Foles or Trubisky, is able to give it a go, I'm not really counting on them to win at Lambeau Field in prime time. Um, you know, so falling to five and six seems very likely at this point. As for what would come after that, they would probably have to win both of their next two home games. Uh, They would be at home against the Lions week 13, at home against the Texans week 14. If they were to win both of those, um, which, again, at this point, I mean, I'm not going to really count on that offense to string together enough consistency to win consecutive games, but if they were to win those back-to-back games and we'll just say hypothetically be seven and six, you know, due to playoff expansion and the fact that it seems like if there is um, a canceled game of teams in playoff contention here at any point, the rest of the way, the NFL is going to expand to eight playoff teams in each conference. Then who knows? I mean, maybe the bears will be given new life and, you know, could potentially go like nine and seven and sneak into the playoffs. But, um, yeah. right now they just need to worry about, you know, doing whatever they can to just, you know, answer some of these question marks on offense and get more consistent because there's just no consistency. There's no rhyme or reason really to their, you know, their drives, their play calling, just, you know, so many of their drives are just complete, Waste of time, um, you know. So many three and outs, and uh, they're just gonna have to figure something out. Especially if it if it is gonna be a situation where Foles is the starting QB, no ifs ands or buts for the rest of the season, as long as he's healthy. They're just gonna have to to get on the same page um, as far as you know him, uh, Foles, Nagy, Laser, just get on the same page and and try to figure something out.
0: Yeah. The thing the Bears also got to realize now and watch out for is with the Vikings beating them, the Vikings hold that tiebreaker on Chicago now until they play later in the year. You look at Minnesota's next three games, they get the two and seven Dallas Cowboys. They get the one and nine Jacksonville J wars and they get the three and six Carolina Panthers. All of those three games are in Minnesota. Realistically, Minnesota should be seven and five coming out of these three games, which that's another position down in the playoff standing Chicago is going to be. And if they lose to Green Bay, the next time they face Minnesota, the best they can be is seven and six where the Vikings theoretically could be seven and six also, or eight and five. Minnesota, like I mentioned last week on the team last week on the show, was starting to play like the team, everyone expected them to. And take that one and five start out of the equation. You had that one point loss to Tennessee earlier in the year. You had that one point loss to Seattle, where if that's a different play call, Minnesota wins that game. Also, Minnesota realistically should be a six and three, if not a seven and two football game, right? Or football team right now. So I guess that's the one positive Chicago can take away is Minnesota is a lot better than what their record shows versus the bears were not nearly as good as what their five and record shows or showed at one point. Yeah,
1: for sure. And I mean, Minnesota is obviously a team that had playoff aspirations coming into the season as they should. Um, and then, you know, quickly got off to that rough start and then, you know, traded in Gakwe and shut down Daniel Hunter for the season. And it just sort of looked like it was maybe a lost cause, but with <laughs> Dalvin Cook, playing the weight, running at the you know high level he's been running at recently and, and, you know, them being able to put together some wins. I mean, they're certainly looking like the second-best team in the NFC North right now behind the Patterns.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that the Bears need to figure out now too is Nick Foles, from all accounts, the injury does look better than what it originally looked like on – TV so that's Mm -hmm. a good thing but I still don't anticipate him playing against Green Bay I just think if it is some sort of a hip injury he's going to need multiple weeks to recover from that Uh, Matt Nagy said he was committed to making Trubisky the starting quarterback if Foles was indeed injured but we really haven't heard much about his shoulder outside that he's listed as day-to-day so we really haven't heard much about the severity of that at this point but now you see that the Bears are working out Deshaun Kaiser either today or was that yesterday I can't even remember but the fact that Chicago is continuing to bring in quarterbacks and continuing to bring in a quarterback like Deshaun Kaiser who is 0-13 as a starter with 11 touchdowns and 24 interceptions that's got to be kind of more of a gut punch to Chicago because honestly if you go into Green Bay without Trubisky and Nick Foles Tyler Bray is your starting quarterback. As bad as it sounds, I'm going to take Deshaun Kaiser over Bray, and that's really not much of an upgrade.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Kaiser actually played a year for the Packers a few years back as well. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Bears, you know, if they were to get pummeled in that game, I don't even know how significant that would really be. I mean, obviously right now the Packers are significantly better than the Bears, I think it's fair to say, um, especially offensively. So depending on the injury situation at quarterback and and just the fact that, you know, they'll be coming off a bye week and still looking to figure things out, that could just be a game where the Bears will just look to put up a fight and and move on. So, um, you know, again, it'll just be a matter of, can the Bears right this ship in enough time to uh, string together consecutive wins uh, in December, you know, and and get back on track? Because they certainly have some winnable games down the stretch. And, you know, with this expanded playoff situation, at least seven teams per conference, obviously, possibly eight, uh, you know, the Bears have plenty of reason to still – you know, be competitive and look to, you know, win some games down the stretch.
0: So then that brings this last question for the Bears before I switch to college football. At what point, if you're a Bears fan, or even the Bears for that matter, do you, I don't want to necessarily tank, say tank, but at what point do you basically concede the season. You have all these injuries to Foles. You have all these injuries to Trubisky and Montgomery and Cohen and so many key pieces on this team that it's beginning to become tough to recover from. Let's just say they get blown out by the Packers and then even like a week or two weeks later, they get blown out again. At what point do you just basically concede and let the players that are injured sit and basically just, finish all the season with a guy like Kyle Sloter or Kaiser at your quarterback and pretty much the people that you've signed practice squad deals, just kind of get them in there because at some point the bears are going to have to be like, we're not going to go in the playoffs this year. Let's just focus on next year and just come back. Helping.
1: Well, they certainly will have to wait until they're hundred percent eliminated from playoff contention, which again, due to this, you know, expanded postseason situation, it might be a while for that to happen, even if they, you know, don't exactly uh, get on the winning track, so to speak. But, yeah, you know, at that point, um, you can make the case that, you know, they can kind of settle for, for, you know, missing out on the playoffs and give playing time to some younger guys. But, you know, I think we have to wait and see, uh, you know, for what it's worth just how bad Foles' injury situation is. Um, just how Trubisky comes along in terms of healing from his injury. And another thing is, you know, this is a team that might be looking to make a statement down the stretch, whether they're really in the playoff picture or not, because you might have, you know, a head coach in Matt Nagy, who's really coaching for his job, fighting for his job at that point. Um, Because, you know, obviously he's an offensive minded guy, a former quarterback and, and, a lot of the blame from the offensive inconsistency and and just overall lackluster offense from this season is really going to fall on his shoulders. And, you know, he could find himself out of a job um, once the season's over. So, you know, I certainly look for them to try to remain as competitive as possible um, for as long as possible. I mean, maybe late, you know, the last couple weeks of the season, if they're out of the playoff picture, we might see – them look to get a younger quarterback thrown into the mix. But, um, yeah, I mean, right now with that great defense they have, they they still need to keep those playoff hopes alive and try to be competitive.
0: Yeah, I guess my – I should have kind of worded it differently, I guess. My thing was if Foles is going to be out, say, three, four weeks and Trubisky is going to be out – say another two three weeks at what point do I guess you put those guys on IR I guess I kind of should have worded it that way because if if they're out until even early December I don't think even bringing them back in is going to give the Bears enough to get in
1: yeah I mean you know and you're probably right I mean I you know based on what we've seen from the offense I'm not sure anything's going to be good enough to get them in but yeah, I mean, we'll just have to really wait and see. I mean, with Foles, like it seemed like you know at the time of him getting carted off that that was something very serious—a dislocated shoulder, broken collarbone, something like that—that that was going to keep him out for at the very least a month. But now, I mean, based on you know what Nagy told the media the day after the loss, um, it's you know it seems like Foles has a good chance of. Ah, uh, getting back to action here potentially as soon as you know week uh twelve when they get back at it against the Packers. So, um, you know we'll just have to see how we'll just have to see what the injury situation is like for those guys and late late November. You know, talking about Foles and Trubisky in late November and and heading into December and you know the Bears will just have to adjust accordingly.
0: Yeah, I like what you said, too, about how Bears might be looking to make a statement and how Matt Nagy might be coaching for his job towards the end of the year, which I'm probably in the minority on this, but I don't think Nagy's job should be the one in jeopardy this year. I think Pace is the one that is going to be more on the hot seat than Nagy. Yes, Nagy's been known as a great play caller and this great offensive mind. But when you look at the system he has in place, it's the same system that he had when he worked with Nick Foles in Philadelphia and the same system that he had when he was the offensive coordinator at Kansas City. And I know that's the vision that he had for this offense. He had the vision in mind that this offense could turn into something like Kansas City or something that could turn into be like what Philadelphia had when they won the Super Bowl. But the reality is the Bears don't have that type of personnel and that type of talent on offense, and it all starts with the quarterback. They don't have a Patrick Mahomes. They don't have a Carson Wentz type of quarterback. So, yes, Nagy is the head coach, and it's his responsibility to create a system that best suits his team. But I think this is more on Ryan Pace for not getting the players that are better suited for Nagy.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we've talked about this a little before in that, you know, Pace is really the guy to blame for overarchingly, you know, in an overarching sense that is for, you know, the quarterback situation and the offense not really taking that next step in recent years. Um, So, yeah, I mean, he's the ultimate guy I would blame for sure. But I just know, you know, with Nagy, if we're going to look at how inconsistent the offense was and the fact that it was just, because, I mean, it, it really has been shockingly bad, I mean, if we're being honest. Like, I, I know that, you know, the Cohen injury really changed things, but with the receivers they have um, and, of course, with the tight end depth and and the experience they have at the quarterback position, this offense has been shockingly bad. I mean, it's like a tale of two different teams, really, when you compare it to the veteran-laden consistent defense that consistently seems to step up and come through and then the offense that you never really know what to expect and just never really seems to step up when when needed except for a couple of those you know desperation moments early in the season where they were able to pull out wins. Um, but since then you know it's just been it's just been downhill from there. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I just know if if this team, after starting off five and one, if they end up like, you know, eight and eight, maybe maybe nine and seven, and or miss out on the playoffs, then it's going to be hard for Nagy to make the case that he deserves to keep his job. Um, and you could certainly say the same about Pace. I don't think there. I don't think Pace has yeah. the
0: case to keep his job. Honestly, versus. Nagy can be like, well, I shouldn't say Nagy because he's never going to admit to it, but a lot of the NFL writers had the Bears as an 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, team. So when they started 5-1, and one, yes, it was a great start, but I guess you could argue that they were exceeding expectations with that start and are now kind of at the expectation level that everyone expected. So Nagy may have a case just because of the injury to Foles, the injury to Trubisky, the injury to Cohen, and an offensive line that honestly I've seen high school teams block better than the bears at this point. And none of that can fall on Nagy because he's not the one that signs the personnel. He's not the one that brings the players in. And as a head coach and as a play caller, you can only do so much offensively. So yes, he's a great offensive mind. Yes. The offense has been atrocious at best this season, but when you watch the bears play at this, at, what point can Matt Nagy physically do anything? Because the offensive line cannot block, so it doesn't matter who calls the plays. It doesn't matter how he creates the system. If the offensive line cannot block, there's nothing any team's gonna be able.
1: Right, to Right? Yeah, and that and that and that really might be the biggest X factor of all. Is just the fact that the offensive line play has been so shoddy throughout this this four game losing skid that the Bears are on. You know, hasn't been great. All season long wasn't too great last year, but yeah, in these past four games it's been pretty poor, to say the least. And yeah, like you said, that's there's nothing really Nagy can do about that. I mean, obviously that mini drama that came out of Foles' comments, the ESPN about not being able to get the you know the plays off and not being able to to work with some of these plays that naggy was calling i mean at the end of the day it really comes back to the fact that they don't have a good offensive line so you know they're really limited in terms of what they can do whereas like a chiefs team that you brought up that consistently has had a good offensive line a really good offensive line with you know you know during Mahomes tenure so they've been able to do more and you know obviously that might be the uh the ultimate you know Underlying factor in all of this is just the fact that with such a poor offensive line, um, that's also battled injuries in recent weeks. They're so limited in what they can do in terms of play calling and in terms of getting the run game going, and obviously the protection that Foles receives. Because I mean, he was you know he was under constant duress. It seemed like in the second half of that Vikings game and. You know, I kind of felt bad for him at times. So, yeah, I mean that—that's certainly a a huge factor in all of this.
0: Getting into college football now, uh, we'll start with Notre Dame, who continues to do what they've done all year. They continue to score points. They continue to win games as they move to eight and zero now, heading into their final off week of the year. Um, It wasn't easy. Boston College actually led that game ten to three and thirteen to ten on separate occasions, so once again, Boston College, a five and four football team was able to hang with one of the best teams in the a c c for a majority of the first half anyways uh Notre Dame though did what Notre Dame does they pulled away late, but it's gonna be kind of a concern where they allowed forty points to Clemson, which I don't think anyone's going to say that was a concern. But seeing how good that Notre Dame's defense has been for the most part of the season, allowing 31 points to Boston College has to be kind of a little bit concerning for Brian Kelly.
1: Yeah, I mean, the defense has definitely taken a a little bit of a step back here recently because, you know, obviously in in several of the early games, I mean, it really carried them. You know, they had that ugly 12-7 win over Louisville last month. And, you know, against Boston College, and, I mean, obviously there are several other examples of them holding their opponent to, to, you know, a very low scoring output. They shut out South Florida, held Pitt to three points, et cetera. But, yeah, these last couple games kind of taking a step back. But, you know, Boston College did, you know, similar to what it did against Clemson when it gave Clemson a scare. Got off to a great start, put up a good fight in the first half but then really get run over in the second half and Boston college or uh, Notre Dame rather was able to pull away. Um, You know, they, uh, they, they were a little quicker to the punch in terms of taking control of that game as opposed to Clemson and their matchup with Boston college, Notre Dame outscored BC 21 six in the second quarter and had a comfortable lead heading into the half and, and, you know never faced much of a too much of a threat in the second half but yeah i mean Boston college has a you know an an arguably underrated offense um obviously their quarterback Jerkovic was a guy who was transferred from Notre Dame so obviously he was playing with extra incentive there um and they're a pretty good team so you know for Notre Dame to to pull out a win uh, on the road after that emotional taxing you know double overtime game against Clemson. I'm sure Kelly will take it and they'll happily move on. but it is something to keep an eye on this weekend um, or rather their their next time out next weekend um, when they' they go on the road to take on North Carolina, a team with a really good offense, and a quarterback in Sam Howell, who's just been playing out of his mind lately. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's certainly a a game that Notre Dame cannot overlook. It's probably a good thing that Notre Dame has a bye heading into that game after having these two high-energy, you know, uh, high-scoring games back-to-back against Clemson and Boston College and they can get rested up prior to North Carolina. Um, And, yeah, that's going to be their last big test before, you know, presumably they have that rematch against Clemson in the ACC championship game.
0: I honestly feel that uh, this is what you could say the pre-conference championship to the conference championship game because if Notre Dame can win this game, they remain unbeaten. They get Syracuse and Wake, Wake Forest the other game is, but Syracuse and Syracuse and Wake Forest are nowhere near the level of like North Carolina. So if Notre Dame can win next week, they should, by all accounts, be getting that rematch.
1: Yeah, for sure. That's like I said, that's like their last big test. I mean, that's just a game that shouldn't be overlooked by anybody, uh, whether it's you know a fan of the ACC or a fan of college football in general. North Carolina you know they they got off to an awesome start. Uh, seemed at times like maybe they were Clemson's biggest competition in the ACC. Um, but you know they they hit kind of a wall, if you will, especially defensively. But you know Sam Howell's been playing great lately. I mean he had that record breaking game uh, over the weekend. Um, and yeah, I mean the Tar Heels obviously coached by Mack Brown, a guy who knows how to get big wins. And, uh, you know, they'll be upset-minded. They'll be looking for a big upset in that game at home. So, uh, Notre Dame certainly shouldn't overlook that.
0: And now, Northwestern is continuing to win football games as well. They picked up their biggest win of the year last weekend against an unbeaten Purdue team. And it was a 27-20 game, which was expected because both teams are playing well. Notre Dame's or Northwestern's defense continues to set the tone while their offense looked a lot better last week than they have in the previous couple of games. This weekend, though, is the test for Northwestern. They get they are at home against the 10th-ranked Badger team, who, for having two weeks off, looked mighty impressive at Michigan. I don't care what anyone's going to say. I don't care if Michigan's having a down year for the Badgers to do what they did to Michigan after not playing a competitive football game for two weeks brings the question of how good the Badgers really would be had they not had those two weeks off. Northwestern historically has given Wisconsin problems especially in Northwestern but after what I witnessed watching that Badger game last Saturday Northwestern is going to have
1: to play a perfect football game if they want to be Wisconsin. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Wisconsin's, you know, a powerhouse. I mean, obviously, you know, they had the layoff due to COVID, but that offense didn't really seem to skip a beat. Um, you know, they manhandled Michigan. So, um, yeah, Northwestern's definitely going to have their work cut out for them, especially considering that offense hasn't exactly – you know, seem to feature too much power, too much firepower, if you will, in, in recent weeks. Um, I mean, they were able to, you know, stay on the winning track and stay undefeated by pulling out the win against Purdue, which obviously is is uh not too shabby, certainly shouldn't be glossed over. That was a good win on the road against a pretty good team. But, yeah, they're really going to have to – I agree with you. They're going to have to essentially pitch a perfect game to be able to beat – Wisconsin and and be able to handle that offense because obviously I mean the Northwestern defense has been great so far but they haven't faced an offense this nearly as um, you know well rounded or you know electrifying as this Wisconsin offense so and you know Wisconsin's it obviously is on a mission to win as convincingly as they can and as many games as they can because they're going to have this weird situation where you have to wonder if the college football playoff committee will hold it against them, that they won't have played as many games as say, you know, maybe a Notre Dame team, like if Notre Dame were to, if they're only lost when it's all said and done is to Clemson and the ACC championship. And, you know, maybe they would get in over Wisconsin because of simply playing, uh, you know, that many more games um, so, you know, Wisconsin is going to look to beat teams into the dirt uh, as convincingly as they can every time they take the field this season. So, um, yeah, Northwestern's certainly going to have their work cut out for them. But, you know, maybe that that defense is going to prove to be the real deal. And, you know, they can come away with the win at home. But, uh, yeah, certainly a, a big game um, and, you know. I agree with you 100 percent. It's, it's going to be tough for Northwestern to stay undefeated.
0: And the scary part about Wisconsin is their first one of the year against Illinois, you had Graham Mertz go 20 of 21 for 248 yards and five touchdowns while the running mm-hmm. game simply couldn't get anything going. Now you go to the Michigan game last weekend. Mertz was he wasn't great. He threw for like 162 yards but and only completed 50% of his passes, but took care of the football. He threw two more touchdowns without an interception. And then the running game for the Badgers against Michigan has almost 300 yards on the ground last weekend. So you have two cases where the passing game showed up the first time and the rushing game showed up the second time, and they have yet to put both together in terms of a complete rushing performance and a complete passing performance, which if that happens – that, that's, that's going to be the ultimate X factor. If they can have that whole offense play together, you know Jim Leonard's defense is always going to be coming ready to play. But what you were saying, how would the college football committee hold it against Wisconsin for playing only six games as opposed to Notre Dame getting 11, 12, or whatever they're going to finish with? Realistically, I don't think Notre Dame has to worry about it. If Notre Dame runs the table and then they lose to Clemson in the ACC title game, Clemson and Notre Dame, in my opinion, are both going to be in the college football playoff because Clemson's going to be ranked one or two at that point. Notre Dame, I don't think, would fall to lower than fourth. So I think Notre Dame's going to be safe regardless. As far as Wisconsin goes, I don't care how many games Wisconsin plays. If you beat Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game, there's no way that you can be left out of the Big Ten or no way that you can be left out of the college football playoff. You go in, you beat Ohio State, who's owned the Big Ten for years, even if it means that you played six games and they played nine, if you go and beat Ohio State, what argument does the college football playoff committee have to keep Wisconsin on? Yeah, it
1: probably won't have one. I mean, my my thinking was just, you know, I guess the likelier scenario of them going undefeated in the regular season and then losing to Ohio State, uh, you know, in, in the Big Ten title game. How their resume would then stack up against maybe a one-loss Notre Dame team, but yeah, I think if Wisconsin wins out, including the Big Ten championship, assuming they would, you know, face Ohio State if they were to beat them, yeah, I, I certainly think they would get in. I feel like, I feel like, really the only, and we, I think we kind of talked about this before, but I feel like the committee is going to, you know, kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the Big Ten champ and not hold it too much against them with, in terms of their scheduling. I mean, I feel like if a team goes undefeated out of the Big Ten, including obviously winning the Big Ten championship game, then I feel like they'll for sure get in, even if it is Wisconsin, who obviously had to cancel some games.
0: Illinois finally picked up their first win this past weekend, and it wasn't easy. They fell behind 20-10 to 10 before – rallying late to beat a Rutgers team who is also one in three, but I think they've actually played better than a one in three football team where you watch Illinois and Illinois should be one in three because the first three games were not pretty for the fighting Illini. We talked about it last week where if Illinois lost this game, they probably weren't going to win another game this season. And now that they got the monkey off their back, they can at least say they won a game. Thoughts on the thoughts on the win against Rutgers for Illinois.
1: Yeah, I mean, good on them to you know get off the schneid, so to speak, and and get their first win. Um, yeah, like you, like you point out, you know, we we talked about the unfortunate reality for the Fighting Illini that that was their best, their really their last best chance to to put up a win. Um, and they were able to do so. Obviously, a clutch field goal at the end of that game. But really, the story of the game was the return of um, the quote unquote return of Isaiah Williams. Um, and in the this new Isaiah Williams 2.0, making his debut start for Illinois and set the re- rushing record for in a single game by an Illinois quarterback. But uh, of course, you know, if you'll recall, Juice Williams, really the last really good um, quarterback that Illinois had, and the last time they made a major bowl game when they played in, in the Rose Bowl um, back in, I guess that was the twenty or the two thousand seven season. Juice Williams, as he was known, his name was his given name was um, Isaiah, and just like, you know, obviously this current um, uh, quarterback, Isaiah Williams. So it's the return of Isaiah Williams and to the quarterback position. And, um, yeah, um, you know, obviously they have plenty to look forward to in terms of what he brings to the table. It looks like, you know, they finally have themselves a legitimate um, replacement for Brandon Peters, who's obviously been missing action due to COVID. We'll see if they'll, you know, there will be a quarterback controversy in the coming weeks once Peters is able to return. But if if Williams is able to keep playing at that high level, but he's obviously a dual threat quarterback and and a guy who brings plenty of athleticism to the table, so that's one positive that. Illinois has going for them you know moving ahead is is having um Isaiah Williams there is is a young quarterback who can potentially you know pick up uh, a good bit of wins for him
0: and then last topic of the day is obviously northern Illinois and the wonderful season they are continuing Mm -hmm. to display through basically the first quarter and early portion of the second quarter, Northern Illinois was actually putting together a pretty decent game plan. They got out to a 14-7 lead, and things appeared to be going well, but Ball State goes and rips off 21 unanswered points from that point on, and that was too much for Northern Illinois to recover from, as they fell, fell to 0-3 on the season following the 31-25 defeat. It's, it's not very good. Sailing right now in DeKalb, Indiana, I can tell you that much, and with Western Michigan on the horizon and Toledo on the horizon mm-hmm. it things aren't gonna get any easier. They're probably looking at a battle of winless opponents to close out the season with that eastern Michigan game, yeah,
1: up. definitely not looking good um you know, obviously Ball State was able to to uh, pull out the win and yeah, like you said, in Decaalb, Illinois, not looking too hot right now. Um, that Huskies program is taking a serious step back as opposed to what it was for so many years under Jerry Kill. Um, And, yeah, unfortunately, they're looking at a lost season. And unlike Illinois, they don't really have a, you know, prodigy quarterback on the horizon who can give them something to look forward to, give them hope. So definitely seems like the – Huskies are are progressing toward a season, putting together a season. that will be one they'll try to forget, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's been pretty rough sailing for Northern Illinois. I watched the first two losses that they had this season, and I did not watch the game last night because I was paying more attention to the NBA draft last night. Northern Illinois – I figured it was going to be a team in transition this year. They had that new head coach take over last year and things did not go smoothly last year. So I kind of figured they were going to struggle again this year, especially when it comes to their season starting as late as it did. I just did not expect them to struggle as much as they have so far. Like Obviously losing to Buffalo and Central Michigan is one thing, but just the way they lost, giving up. Nearly 50 points the first two games, giving up 31 points again this week. Not only can their defense not stop a cold at this point, but their offense really hasn't had much to show for. They've had a couple of drives here and there. But other than that, they've been down by three, four scores where they've had to do nothing but catch. Right, yeah,
1: just really nothing going right for them across the board. Um, and, yeah, certainly so many problems that need to be fixed. And, yeah, unfortunately they're not going to be – doesn't appear they're going to be competitive whatsoever in the MAC this year. It's
0: all the time that Cole and I have for you today. Uh, we'll be back on our regular day of Wednesday next week with Thanksgiving being next Thursday and Northern Illinois going on to the Saturday football schedule. From here on out, we'll be just going back to the Wednesday schedule like we were doing in the past. Cole, anything you want to say to the audience? Yeah, I just up? wanted
1: to give a shout out to the Chicago baseball players who, you know, want racked up some awards in recent weeks. I mean, obviously all the off season chatter is kind of overshadowed that, but um, obviously with the Cubs, you had uh, Javi Baez winning his first gold glove, Anthony Rizzo winning yet another gold glove. Um, obviously the Cubs won the team gold glove award for the NL for the first time. And, First time ever for that franchise and then with the White Sox, um, in addition to Louise Robert winning a gold glove, of course you had the big news of Jose Abreu winning M V P well deserved there and you know, he's obviously likely to um win the Hank Aaron award in the coming weeks, obviously, you know, he, he got the silver slugger as well at his position. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just shout out to them, uh, certainly nothing to scoff at. Uh, of course, Javi also won a fielding Bible award. So happy that the Cubs defensive success could bring them something. And of course, happy for Jose Breu who wins MVP. So shout out to them and, and their, um, Rep, the representation of Chicago baseball during award season.
0: All right, thanks for joining me again today, yep. to Cole. And we'll talk next.
1: You like. Take care.